As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hi, I'm Keith Law, and welcome to episode 49 of The Keith Law Show. My guest today is Tristan McKenzie, right-handed pitcher and number one prospect for the Cleveland baseball team. Before we get to that, first, would just like to let everyone know about some recent content I've had up. I did post my first ranking of draft prospects. This year's MLB draft is a little later than it has been in the past. They've moved it to July 10th through the 12th, so it's going to coincide with the All-Star break, uh, starting the night of the MLB Futures game. And we'll run those next two days. That gives us an extra month of the scouting season, which is going to be particularly important since many high schools are starting later than normal. I just noticed North Carolina's high school baseball season doesn't start till the last week of April. So I appreciate the extra time we'll be getting. Uh, I, so I had a post go up for subscribers last week where I ranked the top 30 prospects for this year's draft. That list will change and it will certainly expand. I'll go to 50 names and eventually to 100 as the spring progresses. But Thought this was a good way to get everyone started with a look at some of the possible names you'll be hearing in the first round. This week, I will answer a question many readers have asked over the last, I would say, six weeks or so. Which prospects am I most looking forward to getting out and seeing in person once minor league games resume? I've already started that. It will run on Wednesday. My hope is to have one such name for every team. Uh, We'll see how far I get with that, but that is at least the goal, and there will be uh, at least two dozen names in there, the rate that I'm going so far. And that is going to be across all of the minors, whether or not I think I'll actually get to see those players, because seeing players, say, in the California League is probably probably not likely between geography and the fact that I'm not getting on a plane until I'm vaccinated. But in a perfect world, those will be the list of players that I would go see. We're also now just four weeks away, four weeks and one day away from the paperback release of my second book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. Thank you so much. Many of you have already bought it. I still uh, get requests from uh, folks who are looking for trying to meet up with me to potentially sign their books. I really hope we'll be able to do that at some point this spring or summer, whether it's at a, at a ball game, potentially doing some in-store, maybe outside of store events. And if you're with a bookstore and would like to try to do something, if we coincide with my travels at all, I would love to do that. I really like supporting independent bookstores. And when I did those events for my first book, Smart Baseball, uh, certainly my favorite part of having written the book, uh, other than 
getting paid for it, which I have to admit I did like, was getting out and meeting people, being able to sign your books and put faces to names or to Twitter handles and to hear a lot of your stories and share some of my stories with you too. So here's hoping we all get vaccinated soon and it's safe for us to gather in or maybe just out front on the sidewalk outside of a bookstore. If you're enjoying The Keith Law Show, please uh, tell a friend. I noticed that uh, downloads of this show have gone up already quite a bit this year, and I really appreciate that. I guess some of you are spreading the word. You can subscribe to us anywhere you get podcasts. You can do it through the Athletic app. We're on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, and Spotify. Now it is my pleasure to be joined by Cleveland pitcher Tristan McKenzie. Tristan's been one of their top prospects for several years now. And if you watched baseball in 2020, you know what Tristan is capable of. I think we saw the best of him uh, so far in his young career in his brief time with the big league club. Tristan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me on. So first, I'd just like to talk to you about how you became a baseball player. I've seen some interviews with you where you really talk about your dad cultivating your love of baseball and the fact that unlike a lot of kids who are as athletic as you are, you really focused on baseball, it seems like, from a pretty young age. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my dad introduced me to the game. Uh, I played a little bit of basketball. I played a little bit of volleyball when I was younger too. But uh, I also have a younger brother uh, and he plays baseball as well uh, at Vanderbilt. But just kind of outside of me playing I just kind of fell in love with just being around the game when I wasn't physically playing like by myself, uh, I would be at the field watching him or like me and him would be together practicing. My dad would be taking us both to go hit, to go throw, to go do whatever it was. And I felt like I just fell in love with the process of just being at the field. Did you, when you were younger, did you play any position? Did you play a position? Did you play any particular position? I imagine you probably got moved around like a lot of really talented kids are when they're younger. Uh, If anybody asks, I'm a shortstop. But uh, I played I played a little bit of short. I played a little bit of third. And then once I got into high school, it kind of shifted towards first uh, as I kind of got up and, and got a little taller and stuff like that. So one of the things that one of the reasons I asked to have you on, I saw you've mentioned a few times in interviews, too, is there's are not historically today. It's a little better, but historically, there just haven't been a lot of black pitchers in baseball that there's been, I think, kind of a. a you know, sort of uh, subconscious racism going on where people would just steer black players to be position players, steer them away from the mound. Did you run into that, any, any of that yourself? And what, you know, what was that process like eventually sort of shifting away from being a position player first towards your focus being primarily as a pitcher? Uh, so first and foremost, I cannot hit. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your candor on this. Yes. My, my dad used to make jokes and say I, I couldn't hit water if I fell out of a boat. <laughs> uh, but mainly, I, I honestly, I just fell in love with the, the control you get while pitching. Mm-hmm. Uh, just controlling the pace of the game and kind of just feeling like regardless of what's going on behind you, nothing can happen without the pitcher throwing the ball. And I feel like that's just kind of where my love of the game started, too. When you were first developing as a pitcher as well. Did you work with anyone at school or outside of school who really helped you hone your craft or did that even come? I guess a better way to ask this is how much of that happened before you signed versus how much of that development into a pitcher as opposed to just a, a an athletic kid with a great arm, how much of that happened after you signed and got into Cleveland system? Uh, I feel like it's kind of, I would say more 75 before, before I got signed mm-hmm. and more just refinement once I got into the system. Uh, I feel like I really found my my identity as a pitcher, as a as a baseball player, 
mm-hmm. uh, before I got drafted, just through working with my dad at a young age and, and working with like several coaches I had, uh, including Brian Kaplan. Mm-hmm. But it's just kind of figuring out who I wanted to be as a player. And then once I got into the Indian system, figuring out like what my strengths were and really uh, diving into those and, and honing those as, and to how I could be a major league pitcher. Cleveland's had a pretty good run recently of taking pitchers, including some who were not drafted as high as you were, like you know, Shane Bieber, Aaron Savali, Zach Plezak, turning these guys into better pitchers as they've come up. And a lot of it, I think, has been working with guys on pitch design or pitch grips. Have you gotten involved in any of that? I know, obviously, you're a Vanderbilt commit. You're a bright guy. I'm sure you have the curiosity to that. But how much of that have you used? And has that helped you change your arsenal or anything in your delivery or even just your style of pitching? Uh, I wouldn't say it was big on like pitch design. It was more just delivery stuff to to kind of make everything feel synced and feel really smooth so that whatever your strengths are, they they really play up. Uh, I feel like when I when I got into the system, I threw really across my body. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we did a lot of stuff with like my lower half to kind of straighten up my direction and really help my fastball, which which has a little bit of ride. I think my direction being cleaned up a little bit really helped it play up a little bit, and it straightened up my curveball and helped my my changeup play up a little a little better too. You've got really huge, like some of the best extension out over your front side of anybody in baseball. I remember. When you were an amateur coming out of, uh, uh, for listeners who don't know, Tristan was born in Brooklyn, so I'll still call you a New Yorker, but you actually grew up in Florida. Yeah. Um, and the big thing was, well, he's so tall. He'll really be able to extend towards the plate. But it seemed like that got even better once Cleveland got you not throwing across your body and more online to the plate. And to me, that's been a huge part of your development. Like just hitters don't really get much of a chance to react to the ball because you're you're releasing it so much closer to the plate. Yeah, I feel like it's it's a lot of the little things that, that we do over here that have kind of helped guys hone in on who they really are. I think that that's one of the things that I aid that I attribute to my success in terms of just me being able to get out to get out on hitters. And I'm not necessarily a guy that's going to blow it by you consistently at 96, 97, 98, but I'm able to to use what I do have at 91 to 95 and just really make hitters feel uncomfortable. I can vouch for that. Well, I haven't, I haven't been in the box against you, but hitters do look very uncomfortable. Even in the minors, uh, they tend to, especially I think right on right, it's a pretty uncomfortable at bat. Uh, I'm glad you brought up velocity because one of the questions that readers have even had about you, even fans of Cleveland say, they'd see you hit 95, maybe even 96 early in a start, but as starts have gone on, your velocity has drifted down more towards a little bit above average, which I think is kind of typical for a young guy and you still really haven't filled out physically like a lot of folks expect. Um, Trust me, you'll get bigger as you get older. It happens to all of us. But uh, sir, talk to me a little bit about that. I know you're aware aware of it. You're aware of it. What sort of things do you, are you doing to see if you can maybe maintain that velocity yeah, since we already know you can pitch with the with the lower velocity that you've had later in starts, but are you do you see anything in in what you're doing with Cleveland or on your own to try to hold some of that velocity a little bit deeper into your outings? Uh, it's I'd say it's mainly just training in in the bullpen and and on the like in our catch play, just the intensity with with which I throw with and kind of just building that endurance as to, to carrying disease. I've seen you comment a little bit about your, how hard it is for you to gain weight, um, that you could, I think you, the joke was a long flight and a, one missed meal and you'd lose five pounds. This was from a couple of years that's, ago. That's so. not false information. Yeah. That's probably <laughs> very false truth there. I know many of our le- listeners are probably very envious right now. Um, I used to be <laughs> a little bit like that, but uh, uh, 
it, like I said, that also went away with age. Um, do you find that that's, again, sort of a, a, I'll leave the question a little open, whether this is on your own or whether Cleveland's worked with you. Are, are you trying to do things to add muscle or do you feel like that's maybe less of a, it's going to come in time and that you're comfortable sort of where your body is right now? Since obviously your stuff was good enough to succeed in the big leagues as you are. Uh, I feel like it's it's just like with with my pitching. Uh, it's never I feel comfortable where I'm at. I feel like we're always striving to get better. And I feel like it's it's a group process. It's stuff it's stuff that I'm doing on my own and stuff that I'm working with Cleveland in terms of just trying to figure out like best times to get meals, the best time to get calories, the best time to just kind of make sure I can go out there and feel good day in and day out. Uh, the weight the weight may not be the end all be all where I have to get to 250 pounds, but if I can go out there and I'm 95 to 97 at 180 190 that may be that may be the case you've had some issues with injuries none of them has really seemed to be connected to the other but was 2020 the first year where you felt more or less healthy from start to finish in I don't, I don't know when the last one was maybe three four years before that but let's just say the first time in a long time where you felt sort of bell to bell you were completely healthy yeah i mean 17 2017 was probably the the my biggest year uh after I got drafted, uh, that was the first full season that I had, and I pitched through all of it, and I think I threw 140-some-odd innings, something around there. Uh, and then in 18, I started having the injury trouble. Uh, 2020 was kind of the first year where, after having the injury trouble, I really focused on on my health, and mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of been at the at the forefront for, for a lot of it for me. And I feel like that's going to be a key kind of just moving forward where I just keep it in, in the front of my mind as to – what I need to do consistently day in and day out, what my routine needs to include and what I need to kind of just stay on top of just so that I'm able to go out there and play a game of catch so that I'm able to go out there and just throw off the mound. Is a lot of that sort of weight room type conditioning or is it more just sort of maintenance of delivery? It's it's a lot of different stuff. It's main, maintaining a lot of stuff in the weight room in terms of like how I go about my lifts, what days I lift really, really heavy and slow and what days I focus on my power. Uh, when I'm in the training room, what days I get worked on, what, what days I get stretched, uh, what days I do post-work, uh, it, it's very, very various in terms of like, there's a lot of moving parts, but it's mainly just about communicating what I need to the guys around me and having them work with me as to how I can stay on the field and be healthy and be competitive. Uh, you mentioned your younger brother went to Vanderbilt. You could have gone to Vanderbilt and Cleveland eventually offered you a pretty good signing bonus and you chose to go pro for which those of us who follow pro baseball were very grateful. Um, what was that decision like? And and certainly, I, I I don't know what your dollar figure was. If you had some number, it's, well, if it's not above this, I'll go to school. But what were the other factors besides just the pure money that made you think about going to Vanderbilt, which is a tremendous, tremendous college baseball program versus turning pro directly out of high school? Uh, I'd say one, the main factor in, in me making that decision was just trying to, trying to just make my big league debut. I feel like I grew up playing baseball. My dream was always to play professional baseball. So when they put the dollar amount in front of me, it was mainly like, this is what I've always dreamed for. This is really what I've really always wanted. Uh, I might as well go and chase it now. If you spoke to say, you know, a high school junior, even a a senior now who was coming up towards the draft, what sort of thing? And they said the kid or maybe the parent, because I occasionally get these questions too. So I'm asking someone selfishly too. What things would you tell them if they're, they're saying, how do I decide, you know, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to get first round money. What are the things I should think about when deciding whether I want to turn pro now versus potentially going to college? 
Uh, I'd say it's more about just kind of writing down your priorities. Uh, I feel like it's something that I did with my family in terms of like we sat down, we wrote down the pros and cons of taking the money in the draft or going to college. And it's, I feel, I felt for me personally, it's like you can go to college and you can get that education and you can come out and be a man with a degree and you can possibly get drafted after that. And if that's what you want and you can go to school and get bigger and stronger, then that's the decision for you. And if you really want to take the chance, then so be it. What would you have studied if you'd gone there? Or how did you say, maybe you hadn't decided. I didn't know. And I started college at 17. I had no idea what I was doing. At the, at the time, I had, had, I had no idea. Uh, I've been kind of like looking into stuff now. And I think I'm really into just marketing. And social media really interests me in terms of like how big stuff can get. Uh, after my debut, it, it, my social media blew up. Mm-hmm. So stuff like that is very interesting to me as to, to how influential it can be and how influential athletes or just other guys can be through social media. Going to go get your degree after hours on the side or maybe in the off season. Yeah. That, that'd that be fantastic. Um, you've also worked with a mentoring group in Cleveland called True to You. So for folks who want to look it up, it's the word true, the number two, the letter U. I feel like Prince would approve of, of that particular <laughs> spelling. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you're doing with them and, and what sorts of things you like to, to tell these kids um, as they're, I know I, the, what I read about at least, a lot of these are kids who are in middle school making the transition to high school yeah so it's a it's a group of eighth graders uh making the transition to high school and it's more of i feel less like a mentor and more like i'm just trying to i I guess mentor is actually the the perfect word uh they're just making decisions based off what they feel they're good at and it's more along the lines of me just guiding their dreams and goals and kind of helping them hone in on what they really like to do and if once they get to high school and even beyond high school what their goals are and, and how they plan to achieve them You've also commented last summer, uh, probably around the time when you made your debut, I don't know if somebody put the question to you, but we were at a point where a lot of athletes, especially athletes in the NBA, and I should say particularly black athletes, were taking more public stances on issues of social justice. And you you said you think this is great. You thought that this was something that you'd like to see more prominent black athletes do to use their podiums to advance important causes. Now you have that platform. You are one of those guys. So talk to me a little bit about that responsibility you, you think you, you, I guess you feel now because you saw it in others. And what are the issues that you'd like to bring more attention to? So, I mean, I guess just growing up as a, as a young black athlete, it's more about finding the representation and in, in what you like to do. So watching a LeBron James, watching a Kobe Bryant, watching a Derek Jeter, watching guys that you feel like you can resemble and hopefully one day emulate, uh, is, is very big to, to young kids in general, uh, regardless of, of skin color. And I feel like now that I have my platform, it's more about just providing the example and pro- trying to be a good role model, someone that they can look up to. So hopefully I can make a positive impact in their life. This is my last question for you. And this is kind of an open-ended one. And it's one that everybody, I think, in the industry struggles with. And I can promise you, you're going to be asked it probably for the rest of your career too. But there's been a lot of talk and a lot of hand-wringing I'd say at least for 15 years now, how do we get more young black players to choose baseball, either to choose to pick it up just at the start when they're younger or to stick with baseball versus other sports to which we're losing some of the best athletes, maybe because there are more scholarships available at the college level. But what sorts of things would you like to see the industry, Major League Baseball or individual teams do to try to increase that interest level among the among young black athletes, or I should say athletes, athletes of color who were simply losing to other sports? Uh, I feel like a lot of it just has to do with 
the draw, uh, especially when you, you, you bring up representation. Uh, I feel like you can look at the NBA, you can look at the NFL and young black kids see a lot of guys that look like them. So they're naturally drawn to, to people that look like them in baseball. It's a little bit harder for them to get that. Uh, and then on top of that, I feel like a lot of the guys they, they view as role models, they, they view as cool, they view as cool. Uh, they, they don't necessarily see that in baseball players because of just how the game is very, I feel like baseball is very, very internally different than a lot of the other sports, uh, which I necessarily, I love about the game, but I feel like outsiders don't necessarily understand that. And I feel like at a young age, young black kids don't get that. And I feel like once you fall in love with the game and you really understand the intricate, the intricacies of the game, uh, you can fall in love with the game more. And I feel like that's, it's more about just teaching them the game. I feel like baseball is a great game for everybody. I absolutely agree on that. My guest today has been Tristan McKenzie, a very, very promising rookie starter for Cleveland. Tristan, thanks so much for joining me and best of luck this year. Thank you for having me on, Keith. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, that was great. I really appreciate Tristan taking some time, especially in the middle of spring training. I uh, would love to get to see him pitch again this year. The last time I saw him was in person in an actual start was in high A here in Wilmington in my actual uh, current hometown. I uh, put a call out on Twitter just this afternoon to see if anybody had any additional questions, especially off those draft rankings. Uh, let me get to just a couple of them here. Uh, Aaron Gershoff, longtime reader, asks, what are the odds that MLB changes course on the DH before the start of the season? I th- believe I'm reading between the lines a little bit here. Major League executives largely want the DH. I think they, th- they believe it would be, not only would it be better, obviously, just better baseball to not have an automatic out at the bottom of the lineup, I think it would make their planning a lot easier. Uh, and they wouldn't have to worry about pitchers getting hurt, hitting or running the bases, which is infrequent, but not uh, not unheard of. But I believe Major League Baseball's negotiators are using this as knowing that the union wants it because those are, those tend to be good paying jobs for players. Uh, they are using this as a point of leverage and thus are trying not to give it away, even though it's inevitable that we will see it whenever we get a new CBA. I think that is 100% likely. But we just may not see it this season because they're trying – again, they're trying to use it as some sort of bargaining chip because there are still issues that they're trying to work out or will continue to have to work out with the players' union. Uh, Laniel Makudu, another longtime reader and fan of the Kane Mutiny, if I remember correctly, uh, says, Hi, Keith. I've heard this saying for years but never quite knew what it actually meant. When pitchers say something is a feel pitch, often in the context of a breaking ball, I think, what exactly do they mean by that? Thanks so much. You will also probably hear that on change-ups. I actually would say anecdotally – that pitchers, in my experience, or 
or scouts or executives refer to the changeup as the the feel pitch more than anything. And what they're really referring to in subjective terms is just do you have a feel for that pitch on a certain day or that you have to develop your feel for that pitch. In other words, the comfort level with you know, I think it's if you were try to operationalize it, it talks about something very more specific. I would say that that is the ability to grip that pitch and release that pitch in a consistent manner, pitch after pitch. You know, if you're a starter, what is that, 20, 30, maybe 40 times a game, depending on what pitch that is for you, and to have the confidence to use it in appropriate counts and locate it more or less where you need to. All of that goes up into feel, a guy who has a lot of feel for that pitch. It's not that different from describing a guy for, as having a feel to pitch or a feel for pitching, um, where that is a bit of a catch-all term that I understand terms like that can, can often sound a little bit empty. But I at least try to use them in the context of looking for a word or occasionally a couple of words that encompass all of those aspects. The having in, a, in the case of a specific pitch, which is your, your real question, it's that you, you know that pitch is there for you and you know what you can do with it because you're gripping it the same way and releasing it the same way and getting to more or less the same release point every time or cl- as close as, as good pitchers do and that you are confident that you can execute the pitch start to finish, including locating it at least to the general area of the strike zone that you were hoping for. Dev Wadwai asks, do I root, should I root for Rocker, Kumar Rocker, number three draft prospect in this class, Vanderbilt starter, to go to the Rangers so I have the perfect troll team to root for after dumping the Astros in 2018 after the Osuna trade? Or is it better he goes to the Pirates for the honor of being number one? Uh, I've spoken to, I'd say, more agents um, than anything over the years. And what I hear far more often is, Going number one is not the most important. That where you get drafted is really actually not all that important. It is um, how much you get paid. That's really the most important thing in the draft. While people do obviously get worked up over where they get drafted, um, and fans do, and and players do. Players get upset if they're not drafted in a certain round. I'm not signing if I don't get drafted in the first round. Oh, handkerchief to the forehead. If you get paid, that's really what matters. And I would say secondary is who takes you. Because if you are taken by the right organization, so to speak, you might move faster. You might have a better big league career. It definitely matters. There are certainly clubs I would not want to get drafted by if I were a pitcher or if I were a position player based on track record, development track record, other players in the system, where their minor league affiliates are. You know, Certainly when Colorado had Lancaster, would you want to be a pitcher? Going into that system, Colorado had three of their four full-season affiliates were in pretty severe hitters' parks, Asheville, Lancaster, and Albuquerque. At least now Lancaster no longer has a team, and and um, that was just a bad place to play baseball and a bad place to develop prospects. Oh, does that answer your question? I'm not even sure. I mean, he should just go – he should go in the appropriate spot, right? If he goes first overall, I'm not going to say it was a bad pick. Even though he's not first on my board, he's a great prospect. He is. I happen to think his teammate Jack Leiter is better. Uh, so if he goes to the Rangers and you get your perfect troll team, I'm not sure why that makes him a perfect troll team, but we can go with, I'll just go with that assumption. Um, that's fine. If you ask me to bet, maybe this is probably a better way to get around your question. Um, cause I'm not a hundred percent sure what you're, what you were trying to get at here, but I would say 
If you said, Keith, here's $100, do you bet on Kumar Rocker going first or do you bet on the field? I'm betting on the field. Kumar Rocker, and I've said this all along, is not a slam dunk 1-1 guy. He is a very good prospect, a very, very good prospect. But there are years where we have Harper, Strasburg, Garrett Cole, for that matter, guys who are clearly 1-1. I don't think this is one of those years. Matt Philpy asks two prospect questions of the shortstop prospects not named Franco. Who do you think has the highest ceiling and who do you think has the highest floor? Well, floor is a tough one because I would probably um, – there are a handful of guys out there. Like I don't know that there are prospects out there where, who I would say, well, their floor is clearly they're an everyday big leaguer at shortstop um, because you could always miss on the hit tool enough that that that's not really their floor right the, the floors for most of the elite shortstop prospects are going to be utility guys extra guys um you know i would say i'm just pulled up my own top 100 here so i had shortstops at one franco eight cj abrams now cj abrams has a pretty dang high floor um he's in the top 10 because he's got such a high ceiling and i think it's fair to say looking at the list he, Austin Martin, who may not be a shortstop, but has a very high ceiling. Bobby Witt Jr. was at 27. Witt and Abrams probably have the highest ceilings. Abrams is a lot more advanced with the bat right now. I would take Abrams' hit tool right now over Witt's hit tool. But the reason I say Abrams might have a higher floor is that unlike just about all of these other guys, you could probably stick Abrams in center field and get a plus defender. Like... Within a year, he would be a plus defender out there. The way Billy Hamilton moved to center field, I was there in the Arizona Fall League when he moved to center field for what I think was the first time in games and immediately was at least a 55 defender out there. He was a natural. And obviously, he was fast enough to overrun his mistakes, but he wasn't doing that. He actually had pretty good reads. It was very impressive for as much as we all pick on Billy Hamilton for his inability to hit. And I think some of that has to do with how he was developed. The fact that he could do that and turn into such a good defensive center fielder overnight is very, very much to his credit. What are the top three things that Commissioner Law, I guess that's me, would do to improve the game? Uh, I would absolutely address this issue of teams losing to make money, essentially. Even though I will argue it is economically rational, right? If you are going to win 70 games, you might as well win 60 games and pick first and spend as little money as possible. And the idea being that you would then spend money when you get good, kind of the way the Padres did, right? The Padres got good and they started to spend a lot of money and convert some of their prospect capital into major league players. But the problem is we have this system of sort of perverse incentives where if you're not winning 90, you might as well just not try. And the fact that Major League Baseball hands out so much revenue sharing money to teams that don't try, I think is really the number one problem facing the sport right now. Um, I've said before I would raise the bottom of the strike zone a little bit to try to get more balls hit into play. Um, if they do that in combination with apparent actual efforts to deaden the baseball, great. I think we will get a sport that still has plenty of offense, plenty of run scoring, but it will involve more plays in the field and more base running. And we do want we want those things. Those are good. That improves the product on the field and will, I think, help enhance the popularity of the sport and help us continue to grow the game. Um, since Universal DH already came up, I'm going to cheat and not mention that as one of my three. The third thing that I would do, and this is this is a post-COVID thing, 
But we need to continue to grow the game internationally. We need to continue to expand the potential talent pool. And because baseball is such a skill-based sport, that is a very long-term endeavor. You plant those seeds now in a country or a region, and it may be 10 years before you see any kind of return on that. The fact that, for example, Uganda has a really strong youth baseball culture. They're really good at Little League Baseball. They've shown up at the Little League World Series. Major League Baseball sent scouts affiliated with the Scouting Bureau over there to conduct some clinics. And one friend of mine who went on that trip and sent me a photo of a game where there was, in fact, a cow in the outfield. Uh, He said, you know, there were players there who could probably end up coming over here and playing some junior college baseball. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing to go into a sport, a country that had no history with the sport whatsoever. And to potentially even get to that point where some of those kids who maybe come over here and even if all it does is it means they come, they get to come here and get some of an American education, then return back home and not play baseball, but maybe continue to teach baseball while also putting their education to use. That's kind of a situation where I think everybody wins, but that has to be planned out so far in advance. And it's like basic research in the science world, basic R&D, where you don't know if that's actually going to lead to a specific product or to a particular profit. You just do it because it's the right thing to do. And if you do enough of that, if you invest enough in those areas, eventually it will yield a positive return. And I think Major League Baseball needs to do that. And it's not, maybe it's not specific countries, maybe it's regions, maybe it's finding where there's some interest and making investments, more investments in little bits of infrastructure, building a couple of better youth fields, for example. You know, One thing I've always wondered is why do we always see the Philippines in Little League World Series, and yet we never see players from the Philippines at any other level beyond that? Maybe there are cultural reasons. Maybe there are economic reasons. I don't know. But if I were in Major League Baseball's, if I were in the commissioner's office, I would look and say, we need to figure that out. Should we be making an investment there? Should we be setting up programs for teenagers who want to continue playing the sport? Even if it's just to set up a pipeline, maybe for them to come play college baseball in the United States. I don't know, but that is something I would ask. And that is something I would like to see Major League Baseball do because other sports have a little bit of an easier time. The time from first picking up basketball, for example, to being good enough to play competitively, maybe at the collegiate level or junior college level in the United States, it's just shorter. And you don't need 10, 15 years to develop that talent pool. King Harris asks, so that question was from Ed Condi, by the way. King Harris says, of the 30 major league teams, how many can develop a high school player better in three years than Vanderbilt? Uh, I would say probably all of them. And that is not a knock on Vanderbilt, but even the best uh, college programs do not have uh, the resources, and I don't just mean money, but personnel available to a major league organization. Now, at any given point in time, there may be a team or two Maybe there are five teams who are lagging, but those will change and the personnel will change. So whoever you think, pick in your mind, if you're listening to this podcast, pick whoever you think is the worst run organization in baseball right now. Well, at some point their GM will change and they'll bring in new people. And my guess is they'll probably modernize the organization. And so I would say over the course of a longer period of time, major league teams will always be able to do it better than Vanderbilt or any really great college, and Vanderbilt might be the best college at developing players. But colleges can offer something very different. And not, I'm not just talking about the education, but that is the ability to play right away in kind of a higher stakes environment in front of fans or for your 
friends and your classmates and, and your entire alumni base of your school. You go to Vanderbilt, you might get to play, right? If you're really good, you might get to play regularly, pitch regularly for three years, and the games always count. The games always matter a lot more than games in low A would ever matter. So there, there are things that, that colleges can offer that Major League Baseball can't for every player. And the last question I'll take has nothing to do with baseball. From Testaduda, another longtime reader, only the obvious question, should New Order be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Uh, yes, absolutely. The question is, um, you know, I actually don't know this. Is Joy Division in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? My guess is they probably are not. But if you induct New Order, do you induct them with Joy Division? It's almost the same band. Um, and New Order obviously has their own extended success, but their, you cannot disentangle their story from that of Joy Division. So I would say put them in together as one unit with, you know, I don't know how they do it. You know, could you do one induction and two plaques? If that's a thing in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I would be in favor of that. That's all for this week's show. Thank you all so much for listening. Do keep an eye out for that article from me on prospects. I am most look forward, forward to seeing uh, which will appear on Wednesday of this week. And as we get closer to actual opening day, you'll see the regular preseason content from me that you're probably used to if you used to read my stuff at my former employer's site. I will do breakout picks, and I will do some kind of standings and playoff and award winners predictions. Those will all come in the second half of March. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. Please get vaccinated as soon as you can. <laughs>